0: bringing the practice home, which I think uh, another way of putting it is how comprehensive practice is, so this practice is meant to be. Though a lot of what can be said is really no different than what was said the first evening. It's simply being awake in our life as we live, it, as we live our life out. Whatever we encounter is our life. And as we live that life out from moment to moment, staying awake and being willing to learn from whatever turns up. So living in an undivided full way with alertness, sensitivity. And we've been attempting to do that here and so fundamentally, there really is no difference. We often call this the integration talk. But there's, in a way, there's something to integrate, but deeply not. I feel it's, uh, it's the same. It's our life here, wherever we go. And when we use words like integration talk, it makes it seem too much as if meditation goes on here, but not there or it, creates, it helps create a more solidified here and there, rather than really wherever we are is, is fine in terms of, of learning, in terms of this practice. For example, yeah, an application of this practice could begin as you drive out of here. Whatever level of concentrations you came with, whatever level of calm or a lot of qualities like that. Perhaps it's been enhanced a bit. I hope so. I hope it's not worse than what you came with. But let's say for at least some people, uh, and in some cases, especially people who have been practicing for a while, it can be dramatic. You can be highly concentrated while you're here. And perhaps the first lesson of applying the practice, particularly in terms of the pliability of mind is that as you get in your car and start to drive away from here, check it and see if it's true. You know, as the, that, ga- that uh, dial that you have in your car starts registering more and more mileage as you drive further and further away from here, there'd be a direct relationship between the more that dial moves and the more your concentration starts to get weaker and weaker almost a guarantee. In order it starts to fall away. My God, all the hard earned concentration that we've developed here. Less and less. As you pass your first policeman and then then there's an accident. And as you get closer to Boston, New York, Amherst, wherever you're going, you wonder if you've ever been anywhere. I mean you just Well then why bother doing this? Well, there is some Something remains, something gets learned, especially if you keep doing it. But the lesson is, or at least one lesson, is that uh, in, in the Buddhist teaching, one of the things that's very important is, that, is to, to see that nothing stands alone, nothing stands in and of itself, as if it's an independent entity. That whatever arises, arises because other things have arisen as well. As we're all interdependent. You have X because y as soon as y stops, X stops. or there are all these complex interrelationships. Okay this situation is intentionally designed to maximize serenity, peace, calmness, concentration. As you know, it's intentionally organized to help that. And so to some degree, that is carried out and is affected. And then as soon as you leave here and get in your car and uh, get out of your car, wherever you wind up, uh, it's as if those places have been intentionally organized to destroy (laughs) whatever. (laughs) Totally different set of conditions. Very little in common with here. You might say totally opposite, where uh, you have to talk or there's something wrong with you. You have to make eye contact. It's kind of the opposite. And so it's no, it shouldn't be a surprise that the quality of attention starts to also change because that quality uh, is dependent. Everything is. It all is a dependent arising. That's a technical term often used. And so if your awareness starts to see your concentration falling away as you get closer and closer to Boston or wherever, and you let it go, I mean what you let go is the attachment to what you think you've attained here, That's a very wonderful application of the practice. Even though you might say, how could that be the practice? It's getting worse. To be able to do that is an attainment. In other words, you start to see that you can't possibly sustain certain kinds of attention, let's say certain microscopic detail in some cases, when when the environment changes, when our total situation changes. That's not a problem. We then bring awareness that's appropriate into that next situation. We do what we can do. It's a lighter kind of awareness, which is not to say that we can't learn or continue to practice, quite the opposite. Okay. Um, the practice is comprehensive in the following sense and often is not seen as such, especially if you think of meditation as being virtually synonymous with sitting on the cushion, with sitting meditation. As magnificent as that is, and as much as that can contribute to us for us, what we lose sight of is that we we don't have a comprehensive view, and we tend to think that if we can just sit long enough, that we can. As some sometimes it's actually phrased this way: you just uh, sit your problems away, whatever they are. You just keep sitting. And somehow the more you sit, the more the problems start flaking away. Some teachers will even say, when you have a problem, more sitting is called for. And that could be true, but as you may find out, and some of you may have already found out, that if you're trying to just get by by sitting, thinking that is what will do it, and neglecting every other aspect of your life, you'll soon find out that it's untenable. So by comprehensive, what I mean is, the practice really includes every aspect of our life. Nothing is too trivial to be included. Okay, Here, we have a rather restricted view of things. We've left our occupation behind. Relationship is rather limited here. And so forth. A lot of the things that comprise our life. The moment we get back, all of that starts to emerge fully. And if we don't take it into account fully and think that we can just sit, let's say, two hours a day and that will neutralize, I don't know, 22 hours of inattentiveness, <laughs> etc., it's silly, It's not. It, it makes no sense. So a few uh, pointers, at uh, guidelines that many of us have found useful in bringing the practice back to where you live from here. Areas to look at. Now, we'll talk about the sitting practice as well. But before getting to that, to make sure that uh, this other point is really clear, I'd like to emphasize it. Since you all, I think you all know that sitting is important. You've come up here, you've been doing it, and perhaps you plan to continue it. A major area is personal integrity. Uh, often in Buddhist books it's called ethics or morality but those terms have such a bad press you know from all of our Sunday school and uh, moral uh, moralism and piety and self-righteousness that we can hardly look at those terms without yawning and yet they're extremely important that's all I'm just talking about that I just I think personal integrity perhaps is a more contempor- contemporary way of talking about it It has to do with the quality in which we conduct our life. It has to do with honesty. It has to do with the kinds of work we do, how we use sexual energy, speech. In this particular tradition, uh, taking substances that undermine clarity of mind, drugs, alcohol. It has to do with... uh, Violence ordinary very common sense things. Now in Vipassana there's a threefold classification, sometimes conceived of as a tripod which supports the practice. The basis and the foundation is personal integrity. In other words, for there be a minimum of loose ends in our personal life. No one is going to be perfect. And perhaps there are no saints here in this crowd, all of us. But there's really quite a bit can be done in terms of the ways in which we live. In order to do that, you have to start paying attention. So we have to scrutinize the way in which we speak, what we say, how we say it. Do we really mean what we're saying? These slight elaborations or exaggerations or you might call them lies. Our job What is our relationship to our job? Is our job an occupation that contributes to suffering on the planet? Does it add more to it? Or does it remove suffering from the planet? Is it the kind of work that should continue? What is your relationship to the job? Is there fulfillment in it? Is there creativity? Is there an expression of your own loving nature in the work? an examination of our of the relationships that we're in. And so forth. Uh, if the area of personal integrity is not looked at, in other words, we somehow think that will take care of itself, what tends to happen is a tremendous amount of energy gets used in all the complicated situations we, cre- we create because we don't fully see how we're living We enter into relationships, uh, perhaps too unconsciously. We stay in them unconsciously. If we have to leave them, we leave them with a tremendous amount of hardship, bitterness. We have jobs that take 40 and more hours a week or studies that take at least that much and we don't really want to do it. That's not where we want to be and yet we do it for one reason or another. And then we go home and sit on our cushion. And you can get nice and relaxed at the end of the day. But I think there are easier ways to do it than what we're learning here. Meditation is meant to go much deeper than that. And so if our typical day is inconsistent with what we're attempting to accomplish on the cushion, they're canceling each other out. We're creating so much trouble, chaos, Uh, having to deal with people's having to deal with us because of the way we behave, that we exhaust ourselves and use a lot of energy. So, the way of awareness is not limited to the cushion. It's meant to be brought into all of our relationship, our work situations, and this developing of attention. If you recall during the last sitting, There's a way of looking at what we've been doing. I think it's simple and I found it very helpful, uh, which applies in action as well as on the cushion. That is, in terms of effort, if you recall, it was making the effort to turn towards the present moment, because we often are not, to turn towards what we're doing. You might be driving a car and spaced out a good deal of the time noticing that and then turning to the activity of driving the car. That takes effort, it takes energy. And in Buddhism, one meaning of that is right effort. So the effort to turn towards your life as it is in that given moment. And every time you do that, it gets stronger. And every time you don't, inattentiveness gets stronger. Or um, low energy or the lack of energy, we turn towards what's happening and then there's the issue of staying with it. Now here the issue of staying with it has to do with, let's say, sticking to the breath or staying with some restlessness or some sensation in the body. And that, of course, will hold once we leave here. But it also applies to relationship. By relationship, I don't mean only intimate relationship. I mean relationship to everything that we encounter all day long. And then finally, if you recall, the mindfulness or that uh, capacity to discern what's happening, that real interest, sensitivity, you could call it that as well. So there's the turning towards the object, whatever that is. There's the sustaining of our attention, placing our attention on that object and being with it. And then there's the interest in noticing the characteristics or features of that object. If you were to stay longer, and the people who stay longer, during the interviews that we have and discussions, we'll be trying to help people become more precise in their, no- in their seeing. So that what you might say is a breath. If somebody asks you, well, what is your breath like? And you might say, well, you know, it's an in-breath, it goes in and it goes out. But maybe after doing it for a while, you'll be able to provide much more detailed information as to what even one in-breath is in terms of all kinds of dimensions. Okay. When we get back home, I feel that same model holds up, but now often outside of the sitting situation in much more highly charged occasions, like personal relationship. If you're in one, or if you're not in one, I'm sure you can remember. Let's say you want to have a relationship with another person. Often we have conflicts, or attachments, or differences between people. And a life of awareness means not avoiding that. It means examining our relationship exactly as it is. It means turning towards it, rather than avoiding skirting issues getting lost in all kinds of things because we don't like what we would have to see if we would pay attention to what's happening. Perhaps you're being annoyed by your partner or perhaps your partner is annoying you and you would have to talk it out and you don't want to do that. I think women are better than this than men. Uh, it seems to be so. In fact, a lot of us are, men folk, are trying to learn how to do it. We seem to have a tendency to kind of avoid it. We have all kinds of more important things to do to conquer the world and triumph in all kinds of realms. And so there's a turning to in an interpersonal situation. I'm not talking about the quietude of IMS or the breath or anything of that sort. Just life, all with your boss. It really doesn't matter where the situation is. A willingness to take, make the effort to direct attention to that situation. And if you If you've tried it, or if you have a memory, you know that we have many ways to avoid doing that. Many escape hatches. There's an elaborate network of escapes. Until it gets so bad that we sort of blow up and then we have to, or the other person does it for us. And so then there's the turning towards whatever it is that situation is. Then there's staying with it, a kind of thoroughness It may not get solved all at once. It may not get solved at all, but a willingness to move with it, a kind of uh, stamina, meditative stamina, a willingness to, even sometimes you you get knocked off course, you come back. It's uh, letting go of this need for immediate gratification all the time and instant results and weekend workshops that lead to nirvana and all the rest of it. This is not one of those things. I don't know what you thought of in coming here. It's a lifetime endeavor. Weekend is, you know, it's, it's a weekend. It's one weekend in our life. No more, no less. And if you want the practice to grow, you have to keep doing it. Day in and day out, year in and year out. And some would say life in and life out. I don't know. And furthermore assuming that we've made the effort to turn towards our work situation, our personal relationships, our living situation, whatever it is, and we're developing that capacity of thoroughness, to stay with it. Let's just call it stamina for the moment, or concentration. Then there's that other element of sensitivity, this willingness to look very carefully at the subtleties of it, and often that takes time. It not something necessarily that we grasp right away. And some of us have the interest in really examining a problem but we don't have much sensitivity. We have a pretty stable level of attention but we've not developed sensitivity. And then there are others of us who are extremely sensitive but we lack that stability and so we're very easily discouraged and blown off course. The sensitivity in a way being equivalent to being fragile. The noticing is going on, but it's also because there isn't enough strength in back of it. We see so much and that seeing uh, knocks us down or pushes us away. So we need to strengthen a bit. Some of us are strong, but there's not much sensitivity. Okay, so you can see that the practice is very rich. It's Let's say typically In a typical day, you wake up, wash up. It's nice if you can start off the day as soon as you can with wakefulness, right there in bed. At the beginning, it's helpful to just notice your breathing. Later on, it doesn't have to be limited to the breath. It's just experiencing the mind and body as early as you can in the beginning of the day, feeling the body pressed against the bed. What are the first thoughts? Perhaps the attitude that... May structure the rest of your day. Sometimes you'll see the embryo mood that you're in, right? In the, right early on, you haven't even gotten out of bed. But if you see it, sometimes it makes it. Le- it doesn't follow so much that the whole day gets colored with it, especially if it's negative. And then we wash up. Have any of you tried, or let's say, taken a shower and really just taken a shower?
1: <laughs>
0: Nothing else. Only take a shower. It's great fun, and it's not so easy to do. You get under the water, and you see your mind is only worked out—not only the, the, that day, but vacations two months later, and you know all kinds of work problems. And somehow we get clean. We're like uh, robots. You know, the hand knows what to do, and the soap and the, the little washcloth covers the body and we get dried and dressed and we walk out. It all gets done. (laughs) In fact, one exercise that um, some of us in Cambridge do a lot, sometimes this is taught in more of a class context, kind of weekly meetings, is spend, let's say, a week on uh, just washing up. Although the practice is to be aware in all activities, through all situations. Give a little bit of extra emphasis, let's just say, to washing up, washing yourself. And before you enter, let's say, in the morning before you enter the bathroom, pause and form the intention to do whatever you're doing there uh, with awareness, in a wakeful way. And perhaps do a week of that, and then do a week of making the bed consciously, then next week sweeping consciously, graduate to the dishes if you're ready for it. but don't move too quickly. Some of us, you know, it's quite a jump. Speaking personally. <laughs> so the so-called routine activities that, comprise, that only comprise a huge proportion of our day. How many more times do we have to flush the toilet, brush our teeth, open and close the, the car door, take the garbage out, make our bed, sweep the floor, take the laundry in, take the laundry out. Do you know what I mean? Over and over and over and over again. Hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of times doing this activity over and over again. And of course it becomes routine. And we get very good at it and we're dead or half alive while doing it. Well, the practice is opening all of that up, rejuvenating ourselves through those activities not the activity, it's the way we relate to those activities. And so it's from the sitting practice, perhaps some of you have tasted it. I hope certainly some of the old yogis what are called old yogis here, which means I think one weekend retreat. You survived one weekend retreat. You get a medal and you're called an old yogi. When you, if you come back, you're called that. From the sitting practice, I think what you can experience is that you get in touch with more life. You can actually feel yourself being more alive during this weekend, even if you were restless. Weren't you more restless than you ever were? <laughs> you know, Or impatient, more impatient than you, than you ever were. But whatever it is, it, it um, gets amplified. And you also come to a very beautiful life energy. You feel more alive. Maybe it just lasts for a few seconds, so that you have access to more life from the sitting practice. It's very straightforward. You begin to feel that. And then the challenge becomes, can we take what we've developed inwardly by sitting still and doing nothing, can we take that and reinvest it in action, take it and bring it into the various forms that comprise our life? bring it into relationship, into work, into cleaning up the house? Or is that freshness, that energy that you've just gotten? Many people don't do that, in my experience. I know I've put in long periods of time not doing that. That is, the sitting becomes sort of a, some kind of monumental trophy. You become the trophy. You know, you sit there, and because we've seen it in museums and art books, and it's very fulfilling. I've just been a trophy for an hour. <laughs> and then we live off that for the rest of the day. (laughs) I did my morning sitting, then we come back at night and we become a trophy again for (laughs) now. To dissolve that for the energy that's developed in the sitting, uh, to not just remain in a a non-active mode in just the sitting, Because what does happen, this is really so for many meditators, there's a high quality of attention and interest and willingness to learn during the sitting or when we're at IMS on retreats or comparable places. And then as soon as that situation ends, we blow it and we become tremendously inattentive. And there's a real split. It's sort of the meditation is sacred, spiritual, dharmic. We we speak at a lower voice in reverence. And then there's the rest of life, when we, when we leave our meditation room with the flowers and the pictures and, you know, special Turkish rug, prayer rug, Buddha, Jesus, Mohammed, everyone's like The whole gang is there. It's not meant in a blasphemous way. We, we leave that. We go out into the dirty, noisy materialistic world where everyone is selfish and elbowing each other out of the way and and of course they're all non-meditators or most of them are. That's becoming the latest epithet. People are non-meditators which is like Cro-Magnon man or Piltdown. It's something like that. is it possible, if we see that happening, that's really a misuse of the practice. So that there is a time to be still, there's a time to go inwards, and then there's a time to unfold the legs and meet the day, whatever your day is, and to bring whatever quality of energy you're able to develop at whatever stage of the practice we're at, to bring it into those activities. Fall down many, many times and keep getting up. If you do that, First of all, you'll see a change in your life, not only in your action, but even the sitting will change because there's more continuity to to attention so that in the morning you get up and let's say you develop, you practice concentration and mindfulness. And then as you do that, as best you can in the forms that comprise the day, and then perhaps come home in the evening and practice again, you'll see that some of that carries over. And so what happens in the sitting carries over into action and what happens in action carries over into the sitting. And at a certain point you'll see there really is no difference. It's just our life and our willingness to live it consciously or not. And certain things can be learned and accomplished in sitting and other things can be learned and accomplished in action. As Carrado pointed out in the talk last night, when people give us a hard time, and then we react in certain ways, they're our teacher. Now if you only were in just sitting in this very beautiful those of you who have done long retreats, by the way, know this. Long meaning at least three months, and sometimes longer. Sometimes you it's such a, a special environment and you do go through a lot of things and you see a lot of stuff. A lot of it negative and also beautiful things. But there's a feeling as if you've accomplished an enormous amount and you really now you really know yourself, especially if you've done a lot of them. And then you leave the retreat center and all that has to happen is you go to Harvard Square <laughs> and there's a ch- there are challenges there that are undreamed of here. <laughs> and it's as if nothing ever happened. You know, suddenly we react and we get angry and because the waitress uh, wasn't on time or it took so long or gave us what, the wrong order. So, Wait a minute, I've been sitting for three months and suddenly it's as if nothing's happened. I personally have learned some things on long retreats that I didn't seem to learn in daily life, at least up until that point. And I've learned some things in daily life that didn't seem to come up in in these very protected sitting situations. So it looks as if they're both necessary. And when you can come and do sitting, come up to places like this, great. But when you can't, there's a lot to be learned in just our ordinary life. It's really the attitude. If we're willing to bring, change our attitude, then life is teaching all the time, nonstop. Just to give you a sense of a few other practical little hints that have helped at least some people. Take the telephone. I have to spend a fair amount of time on the telephone and I don't like to talk on the telephone. Sometimes I do, but it's rare. And uh, I have to, it just, my work calls for it and perhaps some of you have that same situation. And so I made a little practice out of the telephone. And that is, whenever the phone rings, at least when I'm going to answer it, I don't always answer it. (laughs) The answering systems you know, kind of protect us now. We can decide when we're going to respond but let's say you've decided to answer it i form the intention i don't always remember but when i do i form the intention to be alert and attentive independent of who turns up on the other end it might be someone trying to sell me the boston globe or a wrong number or it might be something else let's say a family member or a dear friend or someone you don't want to talk to is Form that intention to really be awake during the life of that telephone conversation. So that's a small practice. It's really the same practice because what what is being suggested is really to try and do that all the time, everywhere. But it looks like it's very helpful to kind of if you have a, a small unit of time that can be isolated, it's kind of bounded. The phone conversation begins and ends that you can make that into a little practice. I've done the same let's say you're about to wash the dishes just a slight pause and form the intention to do the dishes in a meditative way that is just do the dishes and you see the mind plan what it's what movie it's going to go to or whatever then just gently come back to the dishes much as you've come back to the breath so that you learn how to wholeheartedly do the dishes these very simple activities waiting for an elevator waiting for a bus provide us with opportunities to to be awake in a very simple way, a very simple indirect way. I've found those to be helpful. Taking on certain challenges intentionally, slightly more than you think you can deal with, but not so much that you feel overwhelmed. It's a kind of a controlled adventure. For example, there are really quite a few of them. These actually happened. A person who was, uh, all her life, frightened of large gatherings. This was a, a woman in her early 60s, a few years ago, who was doing this practice. And so she would only go to parties, for example, if she pretty much knew everyone and they were very small and intimate gatherings. Which limited her in many ways, because very often her friends would want to go someplace and she didn't know who would be there, or how many people would be there, and she couldn't go. She was. It was just painfully. She was painfully shy, and awkward in situations like that. And what she did was use the practice. It was the next time there. The first time there was an opportunity, she accepted. She went to a party. That was exactly what would have kept her away previously. It was large, and she didn't know everyone. But she went, knowing that she was going to bring mindfulness into the party with her. She knew that she would be frightened or awkward. It was bound to be. Uh, produced by that situation. And so she intentionally went to that situation knowing what would be brought up so that she could work with it. Do you see what I mean? We, life is very rich and provided, provides us with many situations, areas where we studiously avoid things because of fear or some kind of aversion and there are little degrees of unfreedom that exist in our life. Someone else here at this retreat center uh, there's a, uh, a circuit to take a nice long walk. It takes about a little less than an hour. You go all the way around. But there are, especially in the, not in weather like this, but let's say in, in warmer weather, there are dogs stationed almost at each house, you know, on duty, on duty. And their job is to, they get fed and they get a nice place to sleep or a place to sleep if they'll just run out to the road and go, bow wow, bow wow.
1: <laughs>
0: Loud. And this person had a fear of dogs from childhood. And as he reported it, the first few days, the first day, he started to take a walk, as many of us do at, say, lunchtime, and came to the first bow wow, and that was it. Tremendous fear response, you know, sweating and really terrified. And just came back to the center. And for two or three days, he couldn't leave this part, the center, because wherever he went, there was some dog doing its job. And so he came back and about the third or fourth day he decided to to take that on as a practice. Intentionally. In other words, he knew he, it would provoke fear. And he also walked into it not unconsciously but with awareness. Knowing that this situation has always incapacitated me all my life. But now I'm going to walk into it with awareness. The person had been sitting for a while. And he described this story. It was quite moving. I met him when he came back. It was ringing wet and triumphant as if he had just done one of the greatest things in the world, which in a way he has. What he did is he just went through each house and each dog one by one and just experienced terror, heart beating, incredible fantasies of what was going to be bitten and all the rest of it. (laughs) I don't have to fill in details here. it could be a small thing like there was one person who could never sit in a restaurant unless he was facing everyone he had to have the table kind of the command position Uh, and if he ever was in the other way it was just unbearable and he of course almost never let that happen so you intentionally okay give me that give me that seat take me to it and you feel the tension and the paranoia or whatever it is so that what you can do is take on something just slightly beyond your reach. Don't You don't have to take on big stuff. But now, you're doing it consciously and you're bringing awareness in it and when you provoke it, what you're doing is is saying hello to something that's been difficult for you. And we all would like to say goodbye, but we want to skip the hello part. And it seems there's no shortcut, so we have to say hello first and then goodbye. Now, as you know, the retreat brings up a lot of things and that's how we free ourselves from them. And so, often in your eyes, for example, you could be, you know, tears dripping down your cheeks and you just feel awful. But, let's say, if you lead enough of these retreats, it's not that you become jaded, although I guess you can. I haven't been doing it that long, so I'm jaded yet. But, on this side, and especially since I've done my own practice, I know that that's not something, usually, that's not something to feel bad about. Even though, you know, you're supportive to the person, but you understand, particularly if they're willing to work with what's coming up, that that's on the way of letting go. It's in, it's in that direction. This is a huge garbage disposable unit, IMS, and, and that's our job. It processes it and everything's okay and new group comes and it's all fresh. The other, uh, perhaps the last thing, Maybe two things that might be helpful. I'm sure there are more, but it's probably enough to get you started. It is the value of having friends on the path, even if it's just one other friend. Some of you go back to cities like Cambridge or New York where there really are this company to do the practice and it's very helpful and very important. And then there are also many people who are rather isolated. But as you go to places where uh, at least you think no one else is doing this, It's very helpful if you can sit with other people from time to time, as you probably have learned from this retreat. It gives an added strength. Most of us need it. Now, some people can only sit alone, don't seem to need groups. Some people can only sit in groups, don't seem to want to sit alone or or have fear at sitting alone. Both, I think, need to be overcome because life is both. But by far, it seems like the biggest problem at the beginning is that we don't have... Uh, friends, spiritual friends, that we can, uh, talk to, perhaps, uh, share our experience with, and at very least sit together. And what some people have been doing, let's say in small towns where there are no meditation groups and no meditation centers, is just once a week, just agree to meditate together, just for, let's say for an hour, and perhaps, uh, just in a very ordinary way, talk over experience right after that. And I found that to be very supportive. Sometimes IMS can help. Um, the computer now has the zip codes of all the people who come here. And sometimes it's been able to, come to let, tell people that there are people where they live who are doing this practice. They just don't know them. And so I know at least on two occasions people have called up people who come to the center uh, who they don't know and just say, would you like to sit together once a week? And they've done it and it's worked out rather well. Finally, study can be of some use, especially if you're away from uh, support. There are some books that can be quite inspiring and helpful. Uh, Some of them are the records of yogis who have been doing this for thousands of years who are reporting what their meditation experience has been like and with all kinds of valuable hints for our own practice. Uh, For example, to have a comprehensive view Of the practice, not just sitting and observing the breath and whatever comes up. In Buddhism, it's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And one way to look at that is a a kind of a a guideline to the various compartments of life that have to be cared for to prepare the ground for enlightenment, or to prepare the ground for any real sanity and freedom. And there are a number of books that are very clearly written about the, the Noble Eightfold Path. Some of them are a little stilted. They're written from a few generations ago and sometimes by people who have not practiced. But you've practiced. And so when you read them, you can make them more alive than they are, perhaps. And some of them are decent. There's a bibliography that we've put together at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, which is an urban version of this. And you'll be getting that. There's a table with all kinds of, I guess, propaganda when you leave here. And one of those sheets is a, a reading list, which I hope will be helpful. Uh, there's some things on it that uh, it's not that you have to read a lot, but some reading can be very helpful, particularly if you're isolated. Then you may have to get it that way. Let's see. Anything else that's important? Good. Good. Come back and do more
1: retreats,
0: (laughs) not necessarily here, but somewhere. And if you, when you can, as much as these retreats are, for most of us, really necessary and very helpful. And then learn how to, when you're here, be undivided in using the stillness, and using the many hours of sitting and walking. And then when you leave here, just let it go. Just let it go and plunge into what your life is. Don't live in this is another thing that goes on. People live sort of wear like campaign ribbons, you know, the weekend of July, something or other, uh, all the different retreats they've done and the future retreats that they're going to do and the scheming of ways to earn money so that they can afford to do the future retreats and in between might be, oh, only seven or eight months. You know, in other words, most of your life is between the last retreat and the next one and what about that? I mean, that's that's really happening. So, if you had, if it was valuable here, great. When you leave, just let it go and use what you learned in your situation, whatever your particular situation is. And when you can, come back and practice. About 60 of us are staying on here. Uh, we're going to keep going until uh, some about this time next week. What was said today is not just for people to leave, because if you got the main message, it was to develop attention in every situation. So for those of us who are remaining, uh, bring that same care and attention to your job here at IMS, to getting dressed and undressed, to walking from one place to another, Uh, just all the miscellaneous activities that, that go on around the sitting and formal walking. It's really the same message. If you do that while you're here, it's so much easier when you go home. It isn't that big split of sort of here is sacred and there is profane. It isn't. So, so that that's why we welcomed. If you notice on the schedule, it was for everyone. Very often the people who are going to stay are ushered out because this is about something future, and you have nine more uh, not nine but a few more days to, to be here. But I feel it's all about now. Okay, I think that's all uh, that I can think of. Why don't we have a moment of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.